upon our time. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, many of you I know, some of you I don't know. If I don't know you, my name is uh, Luke Hookie, and I pastor uh, downtown. I thought I'd sh- start by showing you a picture of my family. Many of you uh, know uh, that I have kids, uh, but maybe haven't seen my children in a while. And we're there. We were in Niagara Falls uh, just a few months ago, or um, not a few months ago, a few weeks ago. Uh, we were in a baseball tournament in Cooperstown, and then we drove to uh, uh, Niagara Falls, New York, and hung out there. Uh, for today. And when I tell people I have uh, six kids, the question I usually get is, uh, that I get asked is, how did that happen? And I uh, respond by saying, do you really need me to explain that to you? Um, I hope not. Uh, but the question I get most often now is, where does the height come from? Uh, you see my sons there uh, next to me. I am towered between them, or I'm, I'm not towered. They're towering over me. I'm between them, and my oldest son, Leighton, is now 6'1", moving on to 6'2". McCabe is somewhere in the 5'10 range, and uh, Brooks there on the far right is hoping that he gets as tall as them, but I said, son, I think you might have my height. And uh, when, people, uh, <clears throat> when people ask, where does the height come from, I ask the question, are you saying something about my height? <laughs> I feel like a little insecure here. You're saying something about how tall I am. And we are truly blessed uh, to have all six of our uh, kids. God has um, blessed us with each and every one of them. And as you, those of you who have children, uh, you know that sometimes with your kids, you will ask them to do things that are somewhat difficult, sometimes things that they don't want to do. And you don't ask them to do those things because you hate them, but rather because you love them. In fact, I was thinking about this yesterday, and so I asked my youngest son, Brooks, there over there on the right. Uh, I said, Brooks, I said, what is something that mom or dad have asked you to do that you didn't want to do? And he sat there and he thought about it for a minute, and he's like, Picking weeds in the backyard. I'm like, that's the hardest thing you've asked to do. You're, you're living a pretty good life. And, and uh, we uh, ask our kids to do things that are challenging for them. One of my sons, it's hard for him to do new things. And so we put him intentionally at times in new situations to help him to learn, to grow, to mature through those times. And this is what we do as parents. And this is what God does also for us. Uh, This morning we come to a challenging passage, but I think it's such an important passage, a passage in the Bible that has much commentary written on it, many sermons given about it, because it's immensely important how we understand God and our relationship to us. God loves us, and out of his love for us, God will test us, and God will test us because he wants our faith to be revealed, and he wants our faith to grow in him. And there are three movements this morning to the passage dealing with Abraham and God testing Abraham. First is God tests Abraham. Second, Abraham obeys God. Third, God responds to Abraham's faith. Movement one, God tests Abraham. Verse one, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. And Moses starts the story by sharing uh, an important detail with us. What is that detail? What well, God's intent or what God is doing. Imagine if you read this story and God's intention, what God is doing is not communicated. It would make this story even that much more difficult. But what is God's intent with Abraham? Well, as we know, it's to test Abraham, to test his faith. And I think it's important to understand what God is and is not doing when he tests a person. First off, what he is not doing is he is not tempting someone. James tells us no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. Why? Since God does not tempt, is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone to tempt a person to try to entice them to do what is wrong. 
to pull them away, to push them away from doing what is right to doing what is wrong. But the testing of God is not God tempting a person because God never, he's never trying to entice us to do what is wrong, but always trying to encourage, to move us towards doing what is right. And so what is God doing when he tests a person? How should we understand that statement, God tested Abraham? Well, tested, it means to prove the quality of to prove the quality of something. So you think about gold, for example, to test the purity or to prove the quality of gold. One of the ways you can do that is by heating up the gold. It burns off the impurities and what you're left with is the purity of gold, the quality of gold that you have uh, that you were testing for. Or you think about just a test in life. I have one of my sons yesterday, McCabe, second oldest son there. Uh, he took his driver's ed test. So I have one son driving, another son about to drive. And you think about what's happening when you take a test like a driver's ed test. Well, you're taking a test and it reveals whether or not you know the material. If you have the basic understanding of knowledge of driving a vehicle so you can actually uh, do that in real life. And you apply this idea to God testing someone. When God tests a person, he's testing the genuineness of our faith, our obedience, our commitment to him, our love for him. In other words, this test with Abraham is to reveal what is true about Abraham, to reveal his faith. And God does this throughout the scriptures. We see God testing his people. Exodus 16, 4 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. What's the test doing? To see whether or not they will obey God. Deuteronomy 13.3, do not listen to that prophet's words or that dreamer. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. The test that God is applying is to see whether or not these people, his people, will love him with all of their being. And so what is the test or how does... God test Abraham's faith. Well, we all know what the test is, uh, but yet it's important for us to understand, to think through what God is doing. Well, in verse two, this is what God says to Abraham. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Imagine being Abraham. God comes to you, And you hear these words, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and then go, and then followed up by, offer him as a burnt offering. I mean, just think about those words, your son, only son, whom you love, I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. As one commentator put it, those sweet, endearing terms are followed by unmitigated horror. I mean, I don't think Abraham could ever have imagined what God was going to tell him to do as he's telling him to take his son, that it would end with offer him as a burnt offering. Offer him as a burnt offering. And part of the reason why it would be such uh, difficulty to hear is not only just the essence, the idea of offering as a burnt offering, but, but actually what it means to offer something as a burnt offering First, you would cut the throat of the animal that you are going to offer. Then you would dismember the body, and then you would sacrifice all parts of the body by fire, completely consumed by fire on an altar. And so Abraham is hearing these words, take your one, your only son whom you love, and go 
and then offer him as a burnt offering. And this image comes into his head, the sacrifice of his son, what he is to do to his own son. And I imagine that would be crushing for Abraham to hear. I mean, hearing something like that has got to feel like a dagger to your heart. I mean, just the weight of those words coming down on you, just, oh, God, what? And you've probably been there in your life in different experiences where you've heard words, someone has shared something with you, they're kind of crushing, they're uh, those heart-stopping moments in your life. I was about 17 years old, moved going into my senior year. Uh, I was sitting, and my dad uh, told me to come into his office, so I worked at John, my dad was the principal of Johnson High School, I went to school there during the summer times, I worked there. My dad was working in the summer in his office, and he asked me to come into his office, and he asked me to sit down, and I was like thinking, okay, what is going on? Who died? What happened? What's going, what's taking place? Just that, the, the feel, a sense of what was happening was not good, and I sit down, and my dad says, uh, son, he said, uh, your mom and I are going to get a divorce, and I remember thinking that moment and just the weight of those words crushing kind of my soul, my heart, and you probably have felt that before in your own life in different ways. Maybe that way, maybe it was your parents saying to you, we're getting a divorce. In those moments where you're just kind of crushed and the world kind of stops and you're like, what is going on? Now, thankfully, my parents did not, but at that moment, that's what was the plan was. That's what was happening. And there's these heart-stopping, crushing moments in life. And I imagine this is what Abraham is in part going through or feeling. Like just like his world has just been rocked. God, what? 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 You want me to take my son and you want me to offer him as a burnt offering to you? Now, you might ask, why this test? Isn't God opposed to child sacrifice? Well, yes, God is opposed to child sacrifice. And in fact, the outcome where we know God stops Abraham from going through and offering a son makes it clear that God never intended for the command to be fulfilled. And there's two important things to note here is one is Abraham, though, he didn't know God opposed child sacrifice. At least I don't think he knew explicitly. And I say that because one is just the world he was in. Human sacrifice took place in Ur. It was a part of the Canaanite culture. Human sacrifice was familiar to kind of his world that he lived in. Even though he he may have been repulsed by it or however dumbfounded it may have been to him, it was still part of the world that he operated in. And you got to remember, Abraham didn't have the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, to inform his thinking about life and about God. He wasn't blessed like we are to have the word of God written to him that he's learning about God in these experiences as God comes to him. Second, it had to be a real test. In other words, it had to be something that Abraham wanted to really resist for God to test to see his genuineness, whether his faith was genuinely in him or not. And so Abraham's trust was weighed in the balance against kind of common sense, against his own affection and lifelong ambition. It was against his natural affections, this lifelong hope that God was asking him to put to death the very son he had promised to give him. Man, one son gone, Ishmael. Now God is asking him not only to leave his other son, the son of the promise, but to put him to death. What does Abraham do? Think about what would you do? this leads to movement two, which is this, Abraham obeys God 
verse 3. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. Now, I'm not sure what I'm more amazed by. God's command to Abraham to sacrifice his son or Abraham's response to what God has instructed him to do. I mean, look at Abraham. He obeys immediately. There's no questions asked. There's no hesitation, no stalling tactics, no like, I got to go do this first and then I'll do this, God, or no kind of like, God, did you really mean what you said here? None of that. At the crack of dawn, he just gets up, right? He, he saddles his donkey. He, he splits the wood for the burnt offering and he heads out. He's traveling with these two young men and his son, Isaac, whom he is going to offer. And then we're told in verse four, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, the place that God had told him to go. And you think about for a moment, days go by, day one, day two, now day three, arriving, seeing the place that you are to go. And it's one thing to be told to do something and you, it needs to be done like that minute and you don't have as much time to think about it. It's another thing when you're told to do something and then you have days and the reality of what is being told, you've been, been told to do is setting in and you begin to think, wait a minute, what? What am I about to do? God, what is it that you're telling me? that days to think about what God had instructed him to do. He's just traveling on this donkey. You know, there's no iPads, no movies to watch. Like we were driving to New York this summer and 16 hours one way. And you know, what we have is we have the luxury of movies (laughs) to make our way there, to distract or whatever. Abraham has none of that. It's like just this reality, every step closer and closer to doing the thing that I can't imagine he wants to do at all. He certainly doesn't want to do. And with that, it makes this test even more severe, even more challenging, even more difficult. And one would then think that over this amount of time, that doubt would begin to creep in, that doubt would begin to set in. God, did you really mean that? God, is that what you really want me to do? And you think that He's kind of hesitating as he's on this donkey. Maybe I should just turn around. But what we find with Abraham is there seems to be no hesitation, no doubt. In fact, in verse 5, once he sees the location, it says, he says to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we will come back to you. This statement, I think, is quite important. Then we will come back to you. Why? Well, it demonstrates, I think, that doubt had not set in and that his obedience and trust in God days ago was as resolute now as it was then. In fact, we are given some insight into this verse or into this thinking of Abraham from the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises and yet he was offering his one and only son, The one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. And he considered God to be able to even raise someone from the dead. 
Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. In other words, I think what the author of Hebrews is helping us understand is the genuineness of this statement, then we will come back to you. That Abraham was not making this statement simply because he was trying to keep his son from knowing what God had told him to do, but he sincerely believed what he was actually saying. He was totally convinced that after Isaac was offered as a burnt offering, that they would come back together, however that would happen. That he so utterly believed God's promise that Isaac's children would, that Isaac's children would carry on the bloodline, that he reasoned that God could even bring Isaac back from the dead, even though there had been no such thing that he has known of to have happened that God had done some form of resurrection, that Abraham believed God. He trusted God. And so what does Abraham do? Well, Abraham took the wood, verse six, for the burnt offering, and he laid it on his son Isaac. And in his hand, he took the fire, and he took the knife, and the two of them walked together. Just imagine this scene. They get off their donkeys as they're at the base of this mountain. Abraham takes the wood, and he lays it on his son's back. And with the knife and the fire in his hand and the wood on Isaac's back, the wood, uh, the very wood that would be used for his death, they begin to walk up this mountain, making their way together up the mountain. And there seems to have been silence as they're walking together. I mean, you've been in those situations where you're under something really heavy and you don't talk, you're with somebody, but you don't talk, you're just thinking. You're just thinking about what's going on. You're, you're in this moment where things are so heavy, so challenging. You're like, I, I can't talk. I'm just thinking. And I imagine Abraham's thinking about what is going on and what's happening. And then Isaac breaks the silence. And he says, my father. And Abraham replied, here I am, my son. Isaac's silence, uh, a breaking of the silence, probably somewhat underscores potentially the, the real grief that's going on with Abraham and where the language, my father, my son underscores, there's this tender mutual affection for one another. There's a genuine love for each other between father and son. It's not like they hate one another. There's animosity like there may be between Sarah and Hagar, but there's this love and this tenderness and this affection for Abraham and Isaac. The tension is real. And then Isaac Ask the most logical question. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Father, I, you, I see the fire and wood, but where's the animal for the sacrifice? And Abraham answers, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. You know, I don't think Abraham here is just kind of making uh, a generic statement. Just kind of saying, you know, God will work things out. You know, we say things like that. And whether we mean it or not is maybe up for speculation. But Abraham here, I think what he's saying, he genuinely means God will provide. This is a statement, again, it demonstrates that Abraham's confidence is in God. 
The day one when Abraham heard from God what to do, his confidence was in God as he sets out to Mount Moriah. And now he's climbing the mountain with his son and his confidence is still in God. His, he's not wavering, but he's fully trusting. God himself will provide the lamb, my son. And not only does this statement show Abraham's absolute trust and confidence in God, but it also allows for God to be God. What do I mean? Well, in other words, God, for God to do as he sees fit. See, whether God will provide another sacrifice, which we know he does, or he will bring Isaac back to life, whatever it is, Abraham does not try to box God in. He does not try to say, this is what God will do. He just says, God will provide, and he leaves the details up to God. Abraham doesn't know how God will provide. He just believes that God will provide, and after he's seen God provide over and over in his life, he's learned God will provide. He will take care of the situation. He has learned He needs to do, just do what God has told him to do and not worry about how everything will work out, all the details, how they will work out. Which is something very hard for me to do and maybe for you to do. I want to know how things will work out. I want to know from the beginning to the end of what God is instructing me to do, how this is all going to be pieced together. I want to know the details, how God will provide But see, Abraham is not concerned with all the details. He just knows that God will do one way or the other. God will work things out. He trusts God. That this statement, it's a declaration of trust. It's an expression of real hope. And in some sense, a prophecy of the future of what will come to pass, what God will do. And so in verse 9, they arrived at the place that God had told him about. Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac, placed him on the altar on top of the wood, and then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. He quickly builds this altar. He puts the wood in a proper pile for it to burn, and then he takes his son, his beloved son, the son that he loves, his only son, and he bounds him, binds him hand and foot. Why? Well, presumably so. Isaac cannot suddenly run away in fear and he lifts him up and he puts him on the pile of wood and he reaches for the blade and I imagine his fingers trembling hand shaking as he tightens his fists around the handle of the knife to bring it down on Isaac to make that sacrificial cut and by this it's clear that Abraham has passed the test that Abraham's faith is real it is genuine why? Well, as one, fa- as one commentator put it, true faith produces amazing works, and real faith is a faith that works. When you think about faith, what should trail right with faith or go along right side faith is obedience. That if we genuinely believe God, then we will obey God. That we will walk in obedience and submission to God. And by Abraham's obedience, Abraham's faith proved to be genuine, to be real. In fact, we know in verse 12, when the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham and says, tells him not to lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, he says, for now I know that you, feared, you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. I know, I know that you fear God 
I know that you trust God because you have you were willing to do exactly what I asked you to do. You were willing to pay the cost. You were willing to do whatever I asked you regardless of what the cost might be. And so Abraham, a man of faith, a man of obedience, so leads to movement three, which is God responds to Abraham's faith. And there are really two responses that God gives. One is a word, first word is stop, stop. The knife is raised here. He's ready to bring it down on his son Isaac, and in a split second, Isaac's life would be ended, be over. But we're told in verse 11, an angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. And then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. And in that same instant, Abraham looked up and he saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And so Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And I can just imagine what relief and what joy came upon Abraham in that moment. In that moment, he hears God's voice, and never so sweet was the voice of God telling him to stop, and then he shows him this ram that's caught in the bushes, a substitutionary sacrifice for his son. His son's life is spared. How relieving that would be. How awesome of an experience that would be. I'm sure many of you have uh, been paying attention or followed uh, the fires going on in Maui, Hawaii, and the devastation that has caused on the uh, island of Maui there. And my wife was sharing with me uh, a story, just there's all these different uh, stories coming out of, of uh, people and 911 calls and rescues that have been made. And, and uh, there was this family or these people, they were trapped in a, a car and there's fire out around them and they're texting back and forth with the uh, uh, rescue teams trying to give them the, the location and, and telling them what's going on. And they're saying how the fire's all around them. The car's getting really hot. They don't think they're going to make it. They're texting back and forth. And it seems like hope is lost and they're going to die. And then in the next 30 minutes, the rescue team showed up. And you just imagine being in that sit, setting in that car and there's fire all around. You've seen pictures. I mean, it's just like you're in the middle of like a bonfire and someone shows up and they pull you from that car to safety. And there's this sweet sense of relief and joy. And I'm guessing Abraham, Abraham had that relief, had that joy, and as a result probably never made a more eager and joyful sacrifice to God in his life. And with that joy and relief in his heart, Abraham, he names the place the Lord will provide so that it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Remember verse 8, Abraham told his son Isaac that God will provide, and God did just that. And he did so in a more perfect way than Abraham could ever have imagined. And we learn then that God who tests also provides, that the tester is the provider, that as God tests you, he will provide for you. And he will provide for you in ways that you could never even imagine. And if you're like me, you want to know, how, God, are you going to provide for me? If I do this, God, how are you going to take care of me? Or whatever it might be. And what God is just simply asking of us to do is to trust him. That God will work out all the details. 
He is a God who not only tests, but also provides for those who are his. But there's a second response. Not only is there stop, but also there's an oath. Abraham's faith prompted God to do something that is extremely unique. What is that exactly? Well, he swore an oath by his own name, verse 15. The angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn. This is the Lord's declaration because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son. I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. You know, as people, we say things like, I swear on my mother's grave or I swear upon my children that I will do X. And we make statements or oaths like that when we're serious about doing something. We're trying to communicate to someone that what we're saying is in fact true. We're trying to convince someone that our statement is true or that we will do that very thing. And so to communicate that, we swear upon something greater than us or more that has more authority than us. I was in uh, court one time and I was uh, testifying for some trial situation and they have you put your hand on the Bible, raise your hand. Why? Well, you're swearing upon a greater authority that what you're saying, what you're about to say is in fact true. And this is what God is doing. Only in God's situation, there is no one greater to swear by, so he swears by himself. Hebrews 6, the author says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will indeed bless you and greatly multiply you. And the fact that God swears by himself gives these words a unique authority and an assurance to Abraham that they will indeed be fulfilled. With this oath, Abraham had every possible assurance from God that every promise that God made to him would come to pass. And so every time Abraham, he looks up into the night sky and sees the stars. You know, we don't have the luxury of being in the city of really seeing the starry sky, but you go out into the country get away from the city and there's just stars upon stars upon stars and Abraham would have seen stars upon stars upon stars in the night and as he's walking on the sandy path during the day, whether he looks up or he looks down, he is reminded of God's promise to him, of God's faithfulness to him, that God will do what he has promised to do. So in closing, what should we do? Well, there's two points of application I'd like to share this morning. The first is this, keep God's word. Keep God's word. Brothers and sisters, your faith, my faith is going to be tested. How? Well, very much like Abraham. Very much like Abraham. Now, I don't mean in the specifics of how Abraham was tested, meaning uh, God is not going to tell you to sacrifice your child. That's not what I'm saying. So what do I mean? Well, God is going to come to you with his word. He is going to come to you with his word, whether through a sermon, whether through Bible study, as you're having Bible study with others, you're reading the Bible on your own through a conversation with another brother or sister as they share truth with you. However it might be, God will confront you with his word.
And when he does, every time he does, a test in a sense is created. Will you obey God? Will you do what he has instructed you to do? That in every instance, God's word will come to you. It requires you to sacrifice on some level, whether big or small, a cost will be required. Your faith is challenged. Will I trust God and believe God no matter the cost? Will I trust God over my own feelings, over what the world is telling me to do, over what I want to do, or what, over what I might think is right or what other people think is right? Will I believe him? And if you believe him, you will obey him. We will keep his word. For Abraham, it started by leaving his home and family. And at this turn, it confronted him to give up everything that he had waited so long for, his son. There was great cost. But what did Abraham do? He kept God's word. He trusted God no matter the cost. And brothers and sisters, when you are confronted with God's word, don't delay, don't make excuses, don't hesitate, but keep his word. Trust him. Why? Why? Well, there's a number of reasons why, but I'm going to give you just two. One is this, is first because God will bless your obedience to him. Think about Abraham in verse 17. I will indeed bless you. Abraham. And that's directly connected to Abraham's faith-filled obedience to God. God says, I will bless you. And the promise of blessing is not just reserved for Abraham or people in the Bible, but it's also promised to us. John 13, 17, Jesus says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If you know these things, in other words, if you take God's word and you obey it. If you trust God and do what he's asking of you, you will be blessed. Now, what does that mean? Oftentimes our mind, when we think about blessing, we go to material things, more clothes, more houses, more cars, more whatever, more money, jobs. And that could be very well the case. God can, God can and does bless through those means. But the greatest blessing that you will receive as you walk and obey God is knowing God. It's knowing God. It's not more stuff. It's not more experiences, more pleasure. Although those things can be very well given to us by the Lord, and they are, but it's ultimately knowing God. That is eternal life, Jesus says. It's to know him and the one he sent. In John 14, 21, Jesus says, and the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I also will love him and reveal myself to him. That should be the longing of our heart is to know Jesus. To have a greater more intimate relationship with Jesus in the way in which we experience that greater, more intimate relationship with Jesus is by walking in obedience to Jesus. It's by keeping his word, keeping his commands. But not only will you be blessed, but secondly, our obedience will bless others. That's part of the promise to Abraham and as well as to us is that in verse 18 and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring 
All the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Think about that statement. All the nations. That includes us. Here and now. And how are we blessed by Abraham and his faith? Well, you think about what happens, the trajectory of the story of the Bible. Although that, this verse is often taken to refer to all of Abraham's descendants, Genesis as a whole is interested in tracing a single unique line of offspring that will eventually bring forth a special king who will rule over the Gentiles, over all people. And Paul connects this very clearly in Galatians chapter 3. He says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham into his seed. He does not say into seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. How are we blessed by Abraham's faith? Well, through Christ. See, from the perspective of the whole Bible, this oath to Abraham comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ, in him. And what did Jesus Christ come for? To come to do? To live a moral life? To teach us about morality? No. To reveal God and to ultimately to die for the sin of the world. Obviously, there's much parallel overlap between Isaac and Jesus. Isaac, walking up the mountain with the wood on his back. Jesus, walking with the crossbeam on his back. Unlike Isaac, though, Jesus is actually put to death. Jesus is sacrificed. And like Abraham, God gave up his one and only son, the son that he loves. Why? Was a substitutionary sacrifice for you and me. That what we deserve because of our sin and rebellion to God is to be put to death. We deserve to be on the cross. We deserve to be for the wrath of God to be poured out on us. And we deserve to be separated from God for all of eternity. That is the right, just punishment for our sin against a perfect and holy God. But before the foundations of the world, God had a plan to rescue humanity, us from our sin. How? Through the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus Christ, who came through the line of Abraham. Jesus. Jesus came and died in our place to pay for your and my sins so that we might know God. And brothers and sisters, as those of us who know Christ, part of the responsibility that God has left us with is to communicate to the rest of the world the glorious truth about Jesus Christ. And as we walk in obedience to Christ, we fulfill what God has commanded us to do to be the light of the world. That we're walking in the light of Jesus who is the light of the world. And as we walk in obedience to Christ, as we tell others about the good news of Christ, the rest of the world continues to be blessed as people repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, we should keep God's word. Lastly, we should remember God's character and promises. When Abraham was asked by his son, Father, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? He responds by saying, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. What is Abraham doing? 
Well, in essence, in part what he's doing, he's remembering the character and the promises of God. And who is God? He is a provider who will keep his promises to us. And see, we don't need to keep God's promises for him or figure out how to make sure they come to pass. We simply need to remember his promises and allow his promises, his character to motivate us to obey his word and instruction to us. That God's word, his promises become the motivation to walk in obedience to him. And so brothers and sisters, why does God test us? Well, because he loves us and he wants to grow our faith and trust in him. And over the course of our life, as God brings his word into our life and we trust and obey him, the more God will stretch and expand our faith, our trust and obedience to him. God, he cares deeply about us and he wants us to grow and to mature, to learn, to walk more intimately with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your mercy and grace that ultimately has come through Christ, that you have spared us from death and you have given us the hope of eternal life. And Lord, we ask that you'd help us now as we live this life, that we would live by faith, that we would trust you. God, that we would take your word and God, we know it's difficult. There's times when it's going to be so hard to obey you, but Lord, that we would look at stories like Abraham. God, we look at ultimately the story of the gospel and know, God, that you will use your word in our life to mature us and grow us, that you want us to be more wholly dependent on you. God, we thank you for your kindness to us. God, we ask for your uh, grace to live in obedience to you. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, this time.